You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about how to fix primary care. But first up, let's talk about tech solutions. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck, healthcare administrators were forced to innovate and create tech-driven experiences like virtual care services and AI. And now that we have a new normal, demand is higher than ever for those techie solutions that meet patients where they are. But what can health insurers be doing to meet those expectations? Senior editor Paige Minemeyer sat down with Rajiv Mernanke, the chief digital officer at Elevance Health, to discuss what health plans should be doing to provide a more personal patient experience. Here they are. Rajiv, thank you so much for joining me. Coming out of COVID-19, there is more demand than ever for virtual health as well as a personalized, um, convenient experience for patients. To, to kick off our conversation, how do you think health plans can, can facilitate that, that demand? Great, great question. And um, health plans, as you know, uh, are in a unique position to convene consumers and, and providers and intersect. Uh, the two to to bring digital care solutions or virtual care solutions or or in person um, you know care options you know to to our consumers and uh, at Elevance Health you know we're we're no different and as we um, sort of um, looked at um, you know sort of solving some of the needs during the pandemic where access to care was such a big issue uh, we accelerated the development of several digital and virtual care options so that. Our consumers that um, uh, needed the care but couldn't get to a provider, and providers were overloaded with all of the pandemic-related, you know, caseloads. Uh, we provided a series of alternatives that uh, you know made made it easier and more convenient for our consumers to get access to care. And coming out of it, I think um, you know, the, our hope was that this this could become a permanent part of the care ecosystem. So that we can offer more convenience, we can offer more, you know, simplicity in the way that care gets delivered, and ultimately um, use the data and the insights to improve the quality of care and make care more equitably accessible to all of the consumers, whether they're in a rural area where perhaps a physical bricks and mortar facility is not easily uh, within reach, or in a, an urban area where it's it is accessible, but perhaps um, the uh, the wait times are high and, and the, the ability to get to an appointment is, is difficult and, and long. In all of those cases, I think uh, digital and virtual care options to complement uh, existing sort of in-person options uh, and sort of connecting all those dots. I think the pandemic has shown us how it can be done. And our hope is that uh, going forward, you know, we can scale that and, uh, and really make it a part of the uh, everyday sort of care experiences of, of millions of consumers. Insurers have a wealth of data that they can use to drive a more personalized experience for the member, but you know it's still a, a huge challenge to actually put that into practice uh, for for many. Uh, what are some of the barriers that you see uh, remaining that that to enabling insurers to really take advantage of the data that they have? First, the good news: I think there is a, a wealth of data that is already available. Uh, so, for instance, at, at Elevance Health and our affiliated health plans, you know we have. Um, claims data for over 70 million lives. We have uh, electronic medical record data for nearly you know, 18 million lives. We have lab data for over you know, 20 million lives. And um, 
uh, increasingly we're also getting data from from devices like you know your watches, your sensors, your phones, and you know that data keeps doubling you know every seventy three to eighty days. So all that data gets translated into insights uh, and and a wealth of of uh, inf- information and insights that could be made available to both consumers as well as providers and and caregivers to ultimately improve the quality of care. Uh, make it more convenient, make it more personalized. So all that's happening, but there's still a long way to go. I think the, there's been considerable progress on integrating data and making it available to, to our stakeholders. Uh, there continue to be several barriers. Uh, and the reason for that is, is healthcare data exists in you know, thousands, if not so, you know, hundreds of thousands of places across the, the, the healthcare ecosystem. Uh, so imagine uh, an average consumer that perhaps as a primary care physician uh, a therapist uh, has had a hospital visit or two, uh, and has you know data on their their phones. And that's at least five different places you know where that data exists, and we have to integrate all of those data sources, uh, cleanse it, make sure that it's consistent, organized in a way that respects the consumer's privacy, and connect it to the to the rest of the uh, the ecosystem in order to do something with. And uh, so that's the barrier, which is, you know, there's still a long way to go to, to integrate, you know, all the areas and all the places where data exists and turn it into something meaningful so that we can create that impact at scale for quality, simplicity, personalization, and all the goals that uh, health plans, including, you know, Elevance Health uh, have, you know, for our consumers and our providers. With the, the growth of AI as a tool to back data analytics like we've been talking about, um, there there are some concerns about the potential for bias in those algorithms. Um, a, a recent study from Health Affairs, for example, found that predictive modeling used by health plans can run into issues with bias. Uh, how do you think insurers can think in advance to maybe address some of those potential issues? You're absolutely right that we have to make sure that uh, all these programs and initiatives are accounting for the fact that there could be bias, uh, that there could be uh, other factors that would would inadvertently scale the things that perhaps um, ordinarily wouldn't have scaled. And you know, using um, essentially machine learning capabilities and, and digital technologies could uh, cause an unintended consequence of uh, introducing bias at scale across the system. So to address it. You know, I think there's a series of steps that um, uh, health insurers, health plans, and you know, other healthcare organizations can take. You know, uh, that could include, I think, strong governance. You know, so for example, at Elevance Health, we've got a very strong and robust governance program around what we call the responsible uh, use of artificial intelligence, or RAI. And and this program is a, a multifaceted program where each use case that that we evaluate for using artificial intelligence technologies, we first go back to what data sets are going to be used to support that use case and uh, take steps to verify the completeness you know of that data set. And if um, you know, as an example, if that data set isn't representative of a community or a type of um, in a condition that we're trying to treat more holistically. Then, you know, we first go back to the root cause and figure out how to sort of, um, you know, make that data set more complete using various techniques, like perhaps creating synthetic data sets to, to have a more complete representation of, of what the community demographics are in that data set to create ultimately uh, solutions that would minimize bias. I think there's also other things that we could do around, you know, 
you know, testing and comparing sort of different populations and um, uh, analyzing solutions and doing A-B testing uh, to make sure that um, the before and after and the comparison between, you know, sort of different segments of the population uh, could uh, yield uh, some indicators of bias. And if so, we, you know, take several steps to make sure that that is mitigated, you know, before the solutions are deployed. And I think frequently um, in the early, you know, stages of, of uh, rolling out these programs, some organizations, you know, tended to uh, just look at the benefits and ignore, you know, the real, you know, sort of underlying issues that could exist around bias and kind of rush these programs to production. We have to be deliberate and design for, you know, sort of the responsible use of AI principles into all of the base foundational layer of these initiatives before we can, you know, even get close to deploying that into production in real life. And then once deployed, I think the job is not done. You have to evaluate these programs on an ongoing basis uh, to make sure that there's no um, drift in, in the way that uh, the models perhaps have evolved over time to, to create bias. And, uh, you know, test very frequently to make sure that uh, they stay true to the principles of, of um, you know, all the core, you know, programs and, you know, core principles of our responsible AI programs. Um, as, as interest grows in, in, you know, this kind of tech-enabled individualized approach that we've been talking about, are, are you seeing member populations or patient populations that are taking to this more readily than others and, you know, if there are patients that are hesitant or, or uncomfortable with this, I mean, how do we make the case to them to, to get them on board as well? Yeah, certainly, uh, Paige, I think the uh, the more digitally savvy uh, younger population tends to to adopt, you know, digital and virtual, you know, solutions more readily. Um, but that being said, uh, I think the there is an opportunity to uh, address a broader population and a, and a broader set of needs. And one of the things that we found is our seniors, you know, between the age of, of let's say, 65 and, and 76 are quite digitally savvy and uh, use texting and, and use a variety of other uh, uh, digital and, and uh, virtual options. Um, it's just uh, not quite as often, but, you know, quite, quite frequently. Uh, so there's room for um, optimism there as well. And then I think, you know, in terms of the question around how do we make it even more accessible and, and uh, you know, get other adopters, you know, other perhaps people that haven't adopted um, as readily to adopt it as well. We're looking at, uh, you know, addressing uh, the needs of caregivers, family members, so that they in turn can be the primary users that are taking care of others that perhaps aren't quite as digitally savvy. So imagine the the average you know sort of sandwich generation you know families where you know the you know the you know the the families have to take care of both their parents as well as their kids uh let's say the parents are in their 80s and aren't you know quite as savvy digitally you know how about if we get give the the digital tools to the to the family uh that's taking care of it to the kids so that, you know, as a, a family unit that's taking care of both their kids and the parents, you know, we've got the digital tools to address all of those needs. Whereas I think the focus up till now has been around, you know, enabling the individual user. If we look at it more as how do we enable a family or a community or a cohort of caregivers, you know, then I think we have uh, even broader reach you know, to some of these digital solutions. 
You uh, wear multiple hats at the company as the the president of Carillon Digital Platforms, in addition to to having a leadership role at at, at Elevant Health broadly. Um, how does access to the suite of platforms you have at Carillon maybe make it easier on the health plan side to enable that that personalized experience? Yeah, that, that's a it's an interesting question. So the way that we've uh, structured that page is that uh, Elevance and the Elevance Health affiliated uh, health plans are consumers of the capabilities that we create on the, on the Carillon services and the Carillon digital platform side. And, and we almost think of, of Elevance Health as a customer of, of those capabilities. So the digital platform itself, you know, what it does is it connects our providers uh, into the platform via something that we call our health operating system. And that health operating system essentially is a interoperability mechanism that, that connects all of the health plan data that I mentioned that we have uh, directly into the electronic medical records of our providers so that all the providers that are a part of our uh, Elevance Health and uh, affiliated health plan networks have access to all the rich longitudinal information about every single patient that they're caring for. And once that's in place, which you know we've made considerable progress on, uh, we also have then the digital engagement channels with our consumers via our Sydney app or Anthem.com, uh, as well as uh, various voice assistants and our contact centers. So if you put that complete package together, we're almost you know saying to our health plan affiliate or affiliated health plans that uh, you take this and turn it on for various sort of segmented product offerings. Uh, so whether it's uh, you know a digital HMO offering, for example, that we're launching in Nevada to our Medicare health plans to our Medicaid plans, you know, to our commercial fully insured, you know, health plans. All of those those um, health plans become consumers of this platform, and and the broader the utilization of that platform via our affiliated health plans, uh, what that results is in this virtuous cycle. We get more data, you know, more data translates into more insights, and with more insights, we can create more personalized actions, you know, for the millions of users, and then with every action, we can learn from what's working and what isn't. And continually make the uh, the overall platform better. You know, as we close, um, what what do you see as the next evolution of the the tech enabled member experience? And you know, what does the industry need to do to get to that point? I, I think you know, one I think page is the continuation and the scaling of what we're already doing, which is uh, we have uh, consumers that that access our solutions via you know the Carillon. Uh, digital platforms and the Elevant Health set of capabilities like Sydney and our portals and our voice assistants. I think the in the next few years you'll start to see you know all of these capabilities you know being embedded into various other front doors. So imagine if you're searching for something and rather than going from search to you know an app to a portal to getting a resolution. You might just get a resolution rendered in real time while you're searching for things that are personalized, you know, to your benefit plan, uh, to your health history, and you know, it just becomes much more convenient. Or imagine if you're shopping at your favorite e-commerce, you know, um, site, and and you're looking to have a series of medical supplies kind of you know procured and fulfilled. And perhaps that might get integrated into your benefit plan as well, so that you know that could be shipped on along with any other things you might be shopping for in the same sort of one, you know, at the, at the same sort of seamless one-click ordering that, that you're all sort of used to. 
as well as, you know, I'd say that um, a lot more functionality would get, get delivered via texting. I think uh, apps and portals and contact center are one way in which we, you know, resolve issues and, and provide, you know, care and other options. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing, you know, more and more of that sort of being just delivered via text and conversation to it, you know, conversations via texting. And then a lot more, I think, also by way of voice assistants in home that um, are sitting by, you know, on your on your desk or your, or your bedside. And you're able to, um, you know, just by conversing with a voice assistant, get to the, you know, the care that you need. Great, Rajiv. Thank you again so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Paige. That was Paige Minemeyer and Rajiv Rananki. Next up, we'll talk about how to fix primary care. Before we continue with our next guest, I have an announcement. Coming up in January is our fierce JPM week. It's going to be an exciting gathering of some of the greatest minds in pharma and healthcare. During the conference, we'll take stock of current trends, talk about the issues to watch for in 2023, and we'll also talk about innovation strategies. Join us on January 10th in San Francisco or catch us on January 17th through 19th for the virtual programming. Sign up at fiercejpmweek.com or look for the link in our show notes. Okay, so now we'll talk about how to fix primary care, according to Dr. Mai Pham and Fierce Healthcare's Frank Diamond. But why don't we outline the problem first by taking a quick look at the numbers. Over 83 million Americans live in areas where there's a shortage of primary care physicians. To solve that shortage, we would need about 15,000 more primary care physicians. And there just isn't enough interest in going into primary care. So why not? Well, maybe it's because medical school debt can be as high as $400,000 and becoming a specialist pays better. Plus, specialists usually work less hours than primary care physicians. According to the Association of American Medical Colleagues, there will be a shortage of as many as 48,000 primary care physicians by 2032. And the demand for primary care is almost certainly going to increase. By 2034, according to the Census Bureau, there will be more people aged 65 and older than there are children 17 and younger. And that's the first time that sort of imbalance has happened in the country's history. So what do we do? Well, Fierce Healthcare's writer Frank Diamond put that question recently to Dr. Mai Pham. Here they are. Thanks for joining us here at Podnosis. Uh, As you know, I read the article that you co-wrote in Health Affairs, which is why I reached out to you now in the first place. It was a call to action. You said that we, society, and the healthcare system have been experimenting and tinkering with ways to improve primary care for well over a decade. You said now that it's time to act. Just do it, were your your words. Um, To which some might reply, how? You know, Frank... I think the answers have been in front of us for a long time. I think this has been more an issue of um, gathering the political will. I think the how is that you find a program that is already existing where you can reach a lot of primary care practices at once and you offer them more money. I know that sounds really simple, but it just hasn't been done. When we have tried to do that in the past, It's been kind of by half measure, 
and we've put all kinds of uh, roadblocks in the way for practices to get that additional money. It's really hard to take care of those things when you're, you know, you're under a system that where you do one widget, you get paid for that widget. You do the next widget, you get paid for that widget. That that kind of fee-for-service system really gets in the way of thinking about the whole person and what they need. So we want we want an existing program that can reach a lot of practices at once, offer them more money, and offer them it in a form where they don't have to worry about billing for every single widget that they do. They just know, they have some assurance that the money will be there and they can just focus on what the patients need. Mental health care is having a moment. I think that's the term you use. Are there other things that primary care doctors do which are kind of in the purview of a specialist? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, over the years, um, we've seen what we would call the de-scoping of primary care. It used to be that a primary care doc could deliver your baby, you know, take uh, out that ingrown toenail, maybe remove a melanoma spot, um, figure out what your dizziness is about, and take care of your mental health issues. And what we've seen over the time is a lot of those things got hollowed out because primary care docs were just running around trying to keep up with um, not just the pace of what their patients needed, but all the administrative burden of the billing for not enough money for them to hire additional nurses or educators, dietitians, et cetera. So yes, the types of things that primary care providers can do that they aren't doing enough of because of the investment issue are things like those minor procedures, are things like um, really what they're trained to do best, which is take a step back and look at all of a person's needs, both clinical and social, and figure out the best path forward with that person, right? That, that's an integrative function that intellectually primary care clinicians are really, really good at. Specialists are not trained that way. Specialists are trained to look at the organ that they're in charge of or to think about the specific procedure that they're really good at. Fewer and fewer medical students are going into primary care. You mentioned, uh, and I think the, uh, America, the American Immigration Council said about over 30% of primary care doctors are educated abroad. What do you make of this Kind of trend. Yeah, my, my concern is not that um, current, you know, a growing number of primary care clinicians are um, educated overseas. That's not the issue. The issue is what it says about the attractiveness of primary care to our homegrown clinicians. It says that it's not being projected as an attractive field. Um, and so you may not get the absolute best and brightest. And frankly, Regardless of the foreign educated clinicians, we don't have enough PCPs. Right. There, there are not enough primary care clinicians to go around. And that's been true for a long time as well. So um, I think, thank God that we have the backstop of, uh, of you know, immigrant physicians and other clinicians who are helping as a stopgap and to plug in some of these needs, but there aren't enough of them and there aren't enough people going into primary care period because it's not right now a very attractive field. 
there's always turf wars in, in any organization. Do you see or any system? Do you see primary care physicians, despite needing all the help they can get, kind of looking askance at nurse practitioners and physician assistants doing the kind of work that they do, that primary care physicians do? You know, on, on an individual level, I think we're past that point. I think there's a, a great deal of acceptance uh, of NPs and physician associates now. Uh, I think PCP practices welcome them because um, they're more efficient, right? They, they Their salaries are lower and um, and they can really help to extend your capacity. But that's different. You know, the relationships at the individual level are different from what the guilds <laughs> think about. And by the guilds, I mean the trade associations, the professional societies, uh, their local chapters, their national chapters. That is where the friction comes in and where the, the resistance comes in to changing what we would call scope of practice laws to give non-physicians like NPs and, and PAs more autonomy um, to do what they need to do. Getting back to the, your paper that you co-authored in Health Affairs, um, you say that the payment system for primary care docs and accountable care organizations that are physician-run and not connected to hospitals, that that payment system must change. You envision that accountable care organizations, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you envision that accountable care organizations would take on two-sided risk where primary care docs would reap the financial rewards for providing cost-effective care. Now, I think I asked this earlier, but I'll go back to it. What would that look like on the ground uh, or at the patient yeah. level? Well, on the ground, what we would hope to see is individual clinicians in a meeting, you know, in a, an encounter with a patient who's just less stressed about having to bill for a little unit of time mm -hmm. that maybe they can make the appointments longer. They can spend more time listening to the person, understanding their goals, helping them solve their problems, making referrals to support services that they might need, whether that's Meals on Wheels or, um, you know, having a home aid come, make sure that they're safe in their home, and generally improving their health and life outcomes. Also, we're talking about lifestyle. What's the lifestyle of a, a primary care physician? How is it much more intense than you would say your normal specialist? How is it more intense? Well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's more intense than specialist lifestyles. I mean, it, it really varies. But what I would say is that the administrative burden, the stress of um, having to do that, you know, integrative work, thinking about your patient's whole person and, and, and what they need. It's not commensurate with how they're paid. I think that's the struggle. Again, I want to emphasize, this is not just about primary care docs having a higher salary, although that would be nice and critical. It's also about them having the resources in the practice to make their day easier, right? If you had two extra physician associates or nurse practitioners, your day would be a lot less stressful than if you didn't. I'm laughing because I remember when we when we spoke about this, you said, I, I would like uh, primary care doctors to have an immediate pay raise of 30%. You know, and then you said, if I had my way, it would be 50%. Um, have you gotten, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the article? Um, uh, number one, and I guess is a two-pronged question. We've just, come, we've just gone through one of the great 
uh, crisis in healthcare was the pandemic. Yeah. So yeah. if things don't change after this great crisis, uh, do you see anything possibly moving the needle the way you would like it, like it to move? I uh, so I'm Vietnamese and superstitious, <laughs> so I, I I tend to it, I tend to skew pessimistic because I don't want to um, I I don't want to anger the the bad spirits okay. uh, that <laughs> might make things not work out. But I I would say generally no one has argued with the article. <laughs> People have asked questions about it, but no one has said this makes no sense and let's mm-hmm. not do it. I think that people who might um, take issue with some of our recommendations are, it, it's more along the lines of, well, why can't ACOs that have hospitals also get this, right? It's it's more like, why can't we make this broader rather than the underlying premise of doing the thing itself? It's sort of a trope in um, medical writing that what Medicare and Medicaid, what CMS does, eventually private health insurers will follow and self-insured and employers who are self-insured will follow. Do you see any movement along along those lines with those two entities? I, I actually think this is an instance where Medicare is behind <laughs> some parts of the private sector. So if you look particularly in uh, Southern California, there's a lot of activity there led by Blue Shield of California and other health plans to grossly improve primary care payment. And in fact, it, it looks a lot like what we propose. You know, we, we had to make some adaptations for the Medicare context, but this is an instance where states like California, Massachusetts are already moving. It's Medicare that's behind. Now, the challenge of that, so you, you, you know, you can, you can say, oh, well, states are doing it. Let's, let's not worry about Medicare, but it doesn't work that way because, um, you know, uh, there's a labor market. Everyone's competing for the same pool of talent. You can't have one state going off and another state not. You you end up with really gross and unintended consequences um, when that happens. That's why it's important for Medicare to act. It's not just that Medicare would be sending a signal, and it's not just that Medicare's fee schedule gets copied by many private insurers. It's also that there's a national labor market. Right. You know, uh, clinicians don't just migrate within state. You mentioned the blues in California and, uh, and health health plans in Massachusetts. So, is it safe to say that there's close to a template out there of what you want to see done? Absolutely. And you know, what's holding people back? You know, what's holding insurers back, Medicare or private ones? It's probably it's not because they don't think it's the right thing to do. I'm pretty certain of that. I think it's because it's a combination of the politics, right? They, they have to justify the spend to, if you're a private insurer, to, to your employer clients, none of whom want to spend more money on health right. insurance right now. Um, and, and in order, if you try to not change the cost for employers, then you're talking about taking it out of the hide of you know, non-primary care providers. And that's politically not always doable because um, unfortunately it tends to be large facilities and some key specialty groups that have a lot of market leverage. There are lots of reasons why Medicare should do it. In your current role, you're working with individuals with intellectual and emotional disability disabilities. What makes you so passionate about this challenge? My second son, Alexander, is autistic. 
And it was our family surviving his first crisis in high school that made me ask questions. And I realized that I I was pretty clueless about how families with intellectual and developmental disabilities live. And it was in my house. I was Medicare's chief innovation officer. The second part of my woke moment there was, wow, I think this actually makes me pretty typical of general healthcare leaders to be so oblivious to this reality. Um, And that's what led to the founding of Institute for Exceptional Care, because we realized that um, it's going to be hard for many disability organizations to make the kind of system change that's required in general healthcare when they don't trust general healthcare a lot. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism or Down syndrome, they need primary care docs to be even more prepared and even more resourced and have even more flexibility to address their needs. Um, So that's why, to me, it's all the same piece of work. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's been a real pleasure, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. That was Frank Diamond and my fam. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week is our last episode before the holiday break. We're going to discuss 2022's top 10 health tech unicorns and how leveraging data can impact widespread access to care. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Podnosis.